have very much enjoyed um, this little whistle-stop tour through the book of Titus. Uh, three chapters, just three weeks, so this is the last one. Um, you'll know now that we called this series A Letter to a Leader, Building a Healthy Church. And the reason for that, if, if you don't know already, is in chapter 1 and verse 5. Do, do keep your finger on the page here because we're going to be jumping around and uh, looking at some of these verses. Uh, this man, Paul, left his very trusted colleague, Titus, on the island of Crete uh, to straighten things out and to establish churches in this culture and society. We've already learned, so we won't go over it again, that Crete was a hard place uh, to do this. So this was a tough assignment that Paul is giving to Titus, his friend. That's why I put on, on, on this uh, next slide, sorry, not sorry. Uh, I, th I think Paul's got mixed feelings here to leave his friend in such a hard place. But the truth is, rather than being depressed about Crete, I, I think Paul and Titus strike me as men who seem to be full of faith. They believe that God loves the world. They believe that God has a plan for the world. These men believe that God has given his son Jesus to save people from their sins and to bring people into his family. So in a sense, these men are facing a difficult job in human terms, but what they're actually doing is taking God's light into a dark place. They're taking God's generosity into a greedy place. They're taking God's peace into a violent place. They're taking God's love into a selfish place. These men are courageous servants of Jesus. And they're risking their lives here to bring a message of incredible good news to people who need it the most. And this is what we call the gospel, isn't it? Good news. That's what gospel means. Good news from God. We're sinners. One, one person described it something like this. We, we are more lost than we think we are. And yet we are more loved than we could ever dare to dream. This is a life-changing, eternally significant message. And through Paul and Titus, God is calling the people who lived in Crete to turn from themselves and to put their trust in Jesus. And if you, you, you're all here today, God calls us here in Rotherham to do the same, to turn from ourselves to Jesus. If you haven't done that, do it today, do it now. So a little recap there. Last week I gave you a little overview of the whole book and I, I did what I claimed was a bit of a dodgy graphic. I, what I'm trying to convey here is the fact that all of these things link together. So in chapter one, the first thing Paul does is he tells Titus, if you're going to have healthy churches, you need good leaders. And we talked about that in week one. Last week, we were thinking a bit more that if you're going to have a healthy church, the people inside the church need to have healthy, authentic relationships with one another. 
And so we talked about that last week. Uh, this week, it's not the most perfect heading. We're going to think about the idea of being a good citizen. This is where Paul moves on um, to in chapter 3. How should Christian believers relate to the society that we find ourselves in? So last week's question was, why does Christianity change how we relate to one another? This week's question is, how does Christianity shape how we engage with and relate to the world around us? So, uh, you know that I think in pictures, you know, I, I, I have to see something, I don't know, pictorial. So, bear with me, this is not a perfect graphic either, but here, here's my big idea today. Here, here's a little blob that represents society, okay? It's the best shape I could find. It's a thought bubble, really, but here, here's the world. And here is the church in the world. Now, I've drawn it as a little church icon there, so you'll know that it's a church. But you know, don't you, that the church is not the building. The church is the people. But if I'd drawn two or three people, you'd have been just seeing two or three people and not thinking church. So here's the church in the world, okay? Um, how should the church engage with the society that it finds itself in? That's our question. So, should, should Christians basically ignore the world and just retreat into a little Christian ghetto, enclave, a little Christian subgroup? The world, you know, the nasty world outside, let's, let's ignore the world and we'll have a nice time on our own as Christians. Or maybe some people would go to the other extreme and think that Christians should dominate the world. And what we should aim for is to make every country in the world a Christian country and, and basically dominate society. The, the, the truth is, probably somewhere in between those two extremes, isn't it? We, we've got to live as Christians in a world that is not a Christian world. How do we negotiate that? So what I want to do first of all is I, I just want to establish Paul's main point here and, ju and just kind of prove to you, demonstrate to you that this is very much on Paul's mind. We're going to do that in three ways. They're on the program there. We're going to whistle through this quite quickly because I want to spend most of our time on, on the next part. But I think Paul's answer here basically is to Titus that as far as possible, Christian believers should be good citizens wherever they live and work. So let's take a moment just to kind of demonstrate that. First of all, this is where Paul goes in chapter 3 and verses 1 and 2. So let's just read again because it's explicit here. Paul says to Titus, Titus, when you're teaching people in Crete this difficult job that you've got, I want you to do this. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient and to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle towards everyone. I think that sounds like Paul is saying, Titus, teach Christian people to be good citizens. Would you agree? It seems that Crete was a pretty volatile place. We talked about that in the first week. People were angry, quick to take offense, maybe even quick to be militant. 
And remember too that this is a brutal first century Roman empire culture. So this is an important word to them. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. And sometimes these rulers and authorities weren't good ones. Sometimes they were pretty brutal. But Paul says, do your best to be good citizens. I think the phrase, be ready to do whatever is good, is, is crucial here, isn't it? And I think in this context, he, he's talking about contributing to the good of the community that we're in. Paul is not here talking about giving to charity now and again. Paul is talking here about a whole committed lifestyle. The rest of the traits in that list that we read are very significant too. They seem to focus on not thinking the worst about other people, not retaliating, not caricaturing other people as wicked. Believers are not meant to be severe or harsh in their dealings with other people. But secondly, it's not just there explicitly in verses 1 and 2. Let me just show you quickly that it's actually a major theme in the whole letter. Um, in chapter 1 and verse 8, Paul says that good leaders will love what is good. In verse 16, at the end of chapter 1, he talks about false teachers who are detestable, disobedient and unfit for doing anything good harsh language in chapter 2 and verse 6 and 7 uh, or, or in verse 7 should I say Paul says to Titus in everything set the believers an example by doing what is good in chapter 2 and verse 14 we looked at this last week Paul talks about the fact that Jesus has redeemed for himself and purified for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. It's the same phrase. We looked at chapter 3 and verse 1. The same phrase appears there. Look with me at verse 8. Paul, Paul talks a little bit about gospel summer. We'll come back to that in a minute. But then in verse 8, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. And Titus, I want you to stress these things. Why? So that those who have trusted in God may be what? Careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. Do you get the sense that this is on Paul's mind? All through the letter, the same thing. He isn't finished yet. At the end of chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, almost as a closing comment, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. It seems pretty clear that one of Paul's major themes in this letter is that Titus should call Christian believers to be good citizens. Thirdly, and uh, very quickly, I think Paul also gives some reasons why this is important he's not just saying do it so very quickly i gave you the verses if you're making notes there in, in chapter 2 and verse 5 paul talks a little bit about relationships but he he talks about um be, be like this so that no one will malign the word of god 
I don't want anyone to be cynical about God's word. And the point here is, don't, don't, don't let Christians in the church use their Christianity to be awkward or stubborn so that people are wary of you and blame your weird behavior on the fact that you're a Christian. Paul is saying, live in such a way that people would not malign God's word on your account. Your relationship with God should make you more gracious, not more combative. Then in verse 8 of chapter 2, uh, Paul says, live in such a way that would have the effect of silencing your critics. There'll always be people who oppose Christianity. But Paul says in verse 8, live in such a way so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because actually they've got nothing bad to say about you. They don't agree with you, but they can't really condemn you because they see something in your life that they couldn't really fault. And then thirdly, verse 10 of chapter 2. It's interesting that in a culture of slavery, which Paul doesn't condone, Paul speaks in verse 9 and 10 about slaves. He talks here about willing submission, enthusiastic service, cheerful compliance, rigorous integrity, obvious trustworthiness. Paul speaks to slaves who are Christian believers and tells them to be different. Why? Because all of this demonstrates that the gospel that you've believed has actually changed your heart. And it proves, in a sense, that the gospel actually works. It's as if Paul is saying, if you're a slave, be the best you can be. If you're a dad, be the best you can be. If you're a student, be the best you can be. And I I do find it striking in verse 10 that Paul mentions God and describes him as God our saviour. You know those adverts on TV when someone comes to your door with a big box of pearsal and they, and they say, do a little test. Here's some tomato ketchup and all your nice white t-shirts. Do, do a wash. And they come back to the door and they say, it's amazing, isn't it? Whiter than white. Imagine if you came to the door and the tomato ketchup stain was still there and you come to the door and say, this pearsal's rubbish. What Paul's saying is, you, you guys are going out into the world and saying that God is our saviour. But if your character and life still looks like it's got tomato ketchup all over it, what does that say about God our Saviour? There's no showing off there, is there? That's a downside. Paul says at the end of verse 10, live in this way, even slaves, live like this, so that in every way people will, they, they, they will see They will make the teaching about God, our Saviour, attractive. It works. What a tragedy if we're claiming to have a Saviour who hasn't fixed us and our lives are worse. Very quickly, verse 8 of chapter 3. Paul says these things are excellent and profitable for everyone. In other words... When we do good things, it benefits society. And then that last clause that we refer to in verse 14 of chapter 3. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good. Why? In order to provide for urgent needs 
and so that they might not live unproductive lives. It is a good thing to be creative and productive. So, hopefully, we've demonstrated that in this letter, this is a big theme. And there are reasons for it. So we saw last week that the message of Christianity should impact our relationships in the church. Now we're seeing that the message of Christianity should shape our attitude to the people around us and the communities we live in. What I want to do then is just spend the rest of our time unpacking a little of what Paul says here in chapter 3 about what Christian believers should look like as, as we live in the world. Okay? Simple. Simple task. Um, we're going to see four things that should characterize us as we engage with people who are not Christians around us. So, and we'll carry on with this crazy little graphic. So first of all, humility. Humility is something that should characterize God's people as they live in this world and interact with people. I want to spend a little bit of time with you on this. One of the obvious things I think about human nature is the way we build walls between us and other people. And I think the reason we do this is that we like to validate ourselves by feeling superior to people on the other side of the wall that we've built. We like to tell ourselves obviously secretly of course because we'd look like we were bragging if we did this publicly we do it secretly in our hearts that we're not like other people these people over here we're better than them perhaps one of the greatest walls that was ever built in human history was that that was built between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world let me, let me read a quote to you here. One, one writer says this, A study of the history of the ancient world tells us that none of today's social distinctions, none of our racial barriers, our narrow nationalisms, our iron curtains are more exclusive or unrelenting than the separation between Jews and Gentiles in the ancient world. The Jews believed the Gentiles were created to fuel the fires of hell. So thankful that I'm not like them. It wasn't lawful to help a Gentile woman in giving birth because that would only bring another heathen into the world. This is the ancient world we're talking about. It's a massive war. So let, let me illustrate this with a little um, picture here. Uh, once upon a time, me and my two eldest sons, Rob and Ben, went scuba diving. I think some of you might have seen this before. And when we were scuba diving, we were actually scuba diving in a cave. And as we were diving, we came to this sign. And I found it online and took a picture of it. And it basically says, we, we all had torches. And we shone our torch and we were like tapping each other and saying, look at this, look at this. It basically says, swim no further, there is a danger of death past this point. And we were with a guide, 
And he swam past this sign. And we're like, where are we going? <laughs> are we going to die now? Well we, well, we obviously didn't die. Rob's here. Ben is alive. And, and I'm here. But I wanna, I, the reason I show you that is exactly this kind of sign was found in the temple in Jerusalem. In 1871, one of the temple pillars was found, and on it was this warning inscription. So let, let me change this sign a little. I know this one's underwater. This is not the real sign that was found in the temple. But let me change the words. No man of another race is to enter within the fence and enclosure around this temple, and whoever is caught will only have himself to blame for the death which follows. It's like, in other words, don't blame us if you get killed, if you come past this point. What a thing to have on a pillar in the temple. So here's the thing, two groups, a deep divide, hostile, nasty, great barrier between them. And that writer that we quoted, there hasn't been a discriminatory, prejudiced separation as bad as this in history. Jews felt superior, Gentiles felt resentful. And this is just one example, isn't it, of how our relationships often roll. The root of all this is pride, of course, isn't it, on both sides. It is our pride that seeks superiority, but it's also our pride that fears domination, doesn't it? We're, we feel resentful. Religion can often cause this. It makes people feel, feel proud of what they've done. It can make us look down on other people. We're better than that. We're better than them. We're not like these other people. But it's not just religious people. I, I think people can be very proud that they're not religious. We're in line now. We are modern people. We don't go in for all that religious nonsense from the past. We're educated. We're in touch with our humanity. It is possible to be a secular person and yet to be extremely self-righteous and look down on religious people. Here's, why, why am I going through all that? I think one of the compelling things about Christianity is that it is a great leveler. The Christian message destroys the walls that we build because it teaches us that we are all sinners. There is no difference, really. We all need God's kind intervention in our lives. So a Christian believer actually can never be smug or self-righteous or look down on other people. So look with me at what Paul says here in chapter 3 and verse 3 and onwards. Well, let's, let's read it together. Paul says to Titus, 
as he thinks about, in a sense, the outside world, Paul says, at one time, we too, we too, were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved. By all kinds of passions and pleasures, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Saviour, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. Do you get what Paul's saying there? He isn't looking at the society around him and thinking, I'm better than them. He's actually expressing his connection to that society. We should underline that little phrase, we too. We too. He includes himself in this great drama of salvation. He doesn't say, I'm not like those other people over there. What he actually says is, I'm exactly like that. And the only reason I'm different now is because God has lavished his kindness on me. I didn't deserve it. I didn't earn it. It wasn't because I'd done good things and other people hadn't. This salvation is a gift. I could not and did not earn it. I have nothing to boast about. Paul believed that the gospel had changed him and if he could be saved the logic was that anyone could be saved no one is a lost cause according to Paul no one can say I'm too sinful to be saved that's like saying I'm too smelly to have a bath Someone snorted there. <laughs> it is. God has rescued us from the greatest danger and brought us into the greatest blessing. He's brought us from the furthest possible distance, as near to him as we could be. He's brought us from the outside, inside. So the reason Christians should never write off other people or look down on them is because God didn't write you off and he didn't write me off. The reason we can be kind to outsiders is because we have a God who's been kind to us. Paul is saying here that there's no place for arrogance or superiority as we engage with other people. So Christian believers should stay humble But on the other hand, this doesn't mean that Christian believers should be fearful or intimidated or in some kind of despair because we actually have been given something. We, we, we have something to say to the world, to give to the world. We've received something that those around us need to know as well. So on the one hand, stay humble. But on the other hand, Paul says, stay confident. So let's move on and look at what Paul says here. Like in many other places, Paul is urging people here to remember what they were, but also to remember what they've become. 
And in this little section, Paul speaks of the Trinity. He speaks of God the Father. He speaks of the Lord Jesus, God the Son. And then he speaks of the work of God the Holy Spirit. God the Father saves us by sending his son Jesus, but also by pouring out his Spirit. Just at the end of verse 5, Paul, this is an amazing verse. Paul compresses so many things. He, he, God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Last year, there was a craze, wasn't it, on Facebook of ice bucket challenges. Do you remember that? It happened to me, freezing cold water, sitting there. What Paul says here to Christian believers is that God, he hasn't done the ice bucket challenge. He, he, he has poured out his spirit upon you. Not ice cold water, but his living spirit. There's nothing stingy about it. It's like he's, he, he's poured it out generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This is a massive drenching. Paul compresses three different ideas into one work of the Spirit here. The first is that we're washed. The Spirit washes us. The washing. Some of you kids are studying Macbeth at the moment. I studied Macbeth in my GCSE. Well, they weren't called GCSEs then. But I, I remember having to write an essay on Macbeth in my English exam. Some of you kids are studying this. I love the scene where Lady Macbeth... Is she's sleepwalking and she's continually washing her hands. And she, she's imagining that there's still got the blood of the king that her and her husband have killed. And uh, she says very famously, Out, damned spot, out, I say. Will these hands never be clean? Her conscience is stricken. It isn't clean when the Spirit comes through the work of Jesus. We're washed clean. A conscience that was dirty, now cleansed. The Spirit also brings new life. Paul describes the Christian life here as one of rebirth. But it isn't just a new life. What Paul's describing here is God himself coming to live within a human heart. The Spirit of God himself coming to live within us. And then thirdly, Paul speaks of renewal. Isn't that a lovely word? The work of God's Spirit is to refresh and restore and renew. That's what water does as well, isn't it? To bring his powerful, energizing, cleansing life-giving presence. Aren't these incredible ideas for Paul to convey? Paul says, we were this, but now 
we're clean, we have a new life, we're experiencing God's renewal and restoring power, the Spirit of God himself is living within us to inspire and energize our hearts. We sang at the start, didn't we? King of kings, majesty, God of heaven, living in me. Gentle saviour, closest friend, strong deliverer, beginning and end. So, as Christian believers, as we engage with the world around us, we have no reason to be smug. Because God is the one who has saved us. But we have every reason to be glad because God has saved us. The same thing. The gospel is amazing in that it helps us to be both humble without being a despairing worm in the gutter and it helps us at the same time to be confident without being cocky and arrogant. The same gospel makes us humble and glad and confident. And that's what Paul's trying to say to these to Titus, to teach these dear believers in Crete. Stay humble, stay confident as you engage with the world. Two more. Thirdly, consistency. This is a terrible heading, but I just couldn't think of a better one. So I'm going to have to explain what I mean by consistency. Hope If you can think of a better heading, come and tell me afterwards and I'll change this. Verse 8 is Paul's key verse here. I think it sums up the whole letter in many ways. Let's just read verse 8. Everything that Paul said, he says, this is a trustworthy saying. It's a long saying, but it's a trustworthy saying. And I want you, Titus, to stress these things. Why? So that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. What you see here is the idea that faith, trust in God, goes hand in hand with a changed life. We, we had a wedding in our church recently, didn't we? Jai and Hannah got married. And one of the things we always say in a wedding service are these words near the end. What God has joined together, let no man set asunder. Or separate. We're marrying these people. They're, they're, they are meant to be together. I, I think in life we often do try to separate things that are designed by God to go together. So th this is a bit bizarre, but let, let me try and demonstrate this with another graphic. I, I'm going to show you two axes here. Obviously, one's vertical, trust in God, faith. The other one is horizontal, doing good in, in life. Here, here's the point. In this, these things are designed to go together. We run into problems when we try to separate them. We, we could talk about, if, if I add it on, the idea of faith on the one hand and repentance on the other hand. These things go together. So, for example, if you try to do one of these things and not the other, you'll run into problems. So if you say, oh, I believe in Jesus, but I'm going to live as I please, 
It doesn't work. And equally, on the other hand, there are other kinds of people who say, I'm really going to pull up my socks and try my hardest to repent. If there's no faith there, you're still doing it in your own strength. You're still relying on your own effort rather than on God. These things are designed by God to go together, to believe in him and to repent. You can't do one or the other. Both of them go together like hand and glove. Here's another one. You, we could talk about, starting to get busy now, sorry. We could talk about loving God and loving other people. Those are two things that should go together, not be separated Sometimes religious people can say, oh, yes, I love God. But what they're really saying is that's a big excuse for not caring about anybody else. Do you remember the story of the Good Samaritan when the two religious guys came by in their posh religious clothes and they walked on the other side of the road and ignored the man lying who'd been robbed on the other side of the road. We love God, but we don't want to get our hands dirty. Sometimes, though, that can be the other way around as well, can't it? Sometimes we can be so keen to demonstrate that we're loving other people when actually what's going on is that that is a way of avoiding the responsibility that we all have to love God first and foremost. In, in these ways, when we do one or the other, it can sometimes be in a, a form of escapism that we're doing the one to avoid doing the other or vice versa. Christianity can never be a form of escapism. The gospel forces us to put back together things that we tend to separate. So that's why I use the idea here of consistency. Paul is reminding Titus to remind these people in Crete that what you believe will always change how you behave. And that means that if something's wrong in our behavior, it's more than likely that it's because something's mixed up in what we believe. We've believed a lie, or we've believed something that somehow is mixed up, and that shapes our behavior, makes that misplaced. Even this works the other way around, because it can sometimes be the case that the reason we don't believe is because we don't want our behavior to change. Often when we're talking to people, people will present intellectual, re I, I can't believe in Christianity because of this and this and this and this. Sometimes, sometimes that can be true, but sometimes it can be, they, they, these are in a way red herring. The, the reality is that I don't actually want to change. So I'm going to find reasons not to believe so that my behavior can be what I want it to be. When we stop and think about it here, everything that we've learned in this little letter is that Paul's whole approach here to building healthy churches is to preach and teach the good news of salvation from God because when people believe in Jesus, it changes their lives. This is his whole approach, isn't it? I want you to stress these things. And there's a challenge to us here, isn't there, as Christians, to live lives that are consistent. So as we engage with the society we're in, we have no reason to be smug. We've got every reason to be glad. 
but we should be living lives that are consistent with the faith that we profess. Here's one last one. We'll just deal with this very quickly. Stay focused. There's a quick thought here, verse 9 and 10. I do love what Paul says here. One of, the, one of the things that can stop a church from being effective in engaging with others is when we're too busy arguing amongst ourselves. Paul says to Titus, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Why? Because these things are unprofitable and useless. Some things are petty, trivial. And isn't it easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking, man, we're having a massive debate. Aren't we important? Wow, the sides and everyone's kind of having their half penny worth. And man, it feels so important what we're debating here. It creates more heat than light. The challenge here is that if we as a church are focusing on internal, petty, trivial squabbles, when there are lost people outside of the church who are dying because they don't know Jesus, what a tragedy that is. Paul is keen to make sure that believers keep the main thing, the main thing and stay focused on the gospel. And his language is serious here too. He urges churches basically to get rid of people who are determined to be divisive and distract others from the real mission of the church, which is to reach out with the gospel. Paul's language here is very strong language. Don't let anyone distract you from keeping the main thing, the main thing. If someone does, warn them, warn them again. And if they're still not listening, have nothing to do with them. He's not saying that because he hates people. He's saying that because the main thing has to be the main thing. We're done. Let me conclude. We, we could have added a fifth idea here. And I would have put, be brave. And I'll tell you why. We, we need to remember that Jesus did good everywhere he went. And yet was hated. He was humble and confident and consistent and focused and we crucified him he loved God and loved people more than any other human and was murdered for it so there is always the possibility that living for Jesus in this world Engaging with the people around us in this way will bring opposition 
And so I don't, I don't want to preach this chapter and give you the impression that this is a blueprint for an easy life. Far from it. But here, here's the big idea. The church, and I'm talking now about the people, the church is gathered in order to go. We're not called to be an inward-looking subgroup or some kind of Christian ghetto, as we said. Friends, we are not just here to have a nice time and worship God and ignore the people around us. We, We are gathered in order to go. We're called together and then sent to our families, to our workplaces, to the streets where we live. And God is calling us not to be smug, but to be humble. Not to be defeatist, but confident. Not to be inconsistent, but true. And not to be petty and trivial, but serious about loving the lost people we find all around us. Let's pray, shall we? Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how amazingly relevant, incisive, encouraging and challenging it is. Father, we thank you for your plan for this world. We thank you that the church is your invention. It is your idea that you are calling to yourself a people from out of the world, gathering to yourself a people and then sending them back out into that world to bring the good news of Jesus to those who need it. Father, would you help us to be a healthy church? Would you help us in our leadership? Would you help us in our relationships? And would you help us, Lord, in our relationships with those in our community? Help us to bear fruit. Help us as a church to bring glory to your great name. May the fame of the Lord Jesus spread in this place. May people come to worship you as we hold out the word of life to those around us. Lord, would you bless us? Would you inspire us? Would you drench us and fill us with your Holy Spirit and inspire us for that task, we pray in the good and strong name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.